Before I start the podcast, I have a quick message for all the coaches who are listening. This November, I'm running a master level coach training, and we're looking for great coaches to join us. The training is where I share with a small group of coaches my most successful coaching techniques and strategies. It's also where Bregman Partners looks to recruit new coaches for our coaching team. Every time we run this training, it is such a powerful reminder to me of how meaningful a chance to learn, practice, and build a coaching community can be. I would love to meet you there. To register, visit peterbregman.com leadership-coach-training or check out the URL in the iTunes store. Okay, now on to the podcast. Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. Daniel McGinn is on the podcast today. He is a senior editor at Harvard Business Review. His writing has appeared in Wired, the Boston Globe, Newsweek. He lives in Boston. And the book that we are here to talk about that he's written is Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Peter. So the premise of this in some ways is that what you do immediately before performance makes all the difference to performance. Am I thinking about this right? Yes, you are. Uh, if you th If you watch sports on the weekends, whether it's a professional football game or if you watch the Olympics every few summers, you'll see the athletes in the moments before they take the field or jump into the pool or get onto the track involved in a, in a sort of a routine. You'll see that locked in look in their eyes. They often will have headphones on. They're listening to a certain playlist. They've been taught what to do in those final few moments in order to try to optimize and perform their best. And the argument in the book is that, you know, you and I are not time Tom Brady or Michael Phelps, but we would do our jobs better if we learn to develop the same kind of routine for those final few minutes before we do the activities where we're adding the most value in our lives. So I, I definitely have that image of Michael Phelps walking out to swim with his uh, earphones on, his iPod on. And and I and so I resonate with that. I, I there was an underlying question I had as I was reading through the book, which is: Can being so deliberate about a pregame ritual also stress us out? It can, um, if you're so inflexible and the routine calls for a lot of rigid things, and it goes wrong, that could be a downside. There's so here's an example of that. Um, there was a a famous baseball player for the Red Sox years ago named Wade Boggs, and he was unbelievably ritualistic. He wanted to do all these things before a game in order to feel like he was getting in the groove. And one of those routines was he wanted to do sprints across the outfield every night at exactly 17 minutes before the first pitch. So the opposing teams caught on to this, and they would actually manipulate the clocks in the stadium yeah. so that they would skip the 17th minute. They would actually adjust the clocks forward and backwards just to mess with him. So that's an example of, yeah, if you get too rigid about it, um, you can set yourself up for a problem. But in general, if your choice is to do nothing but just sit there and be nervous or have something that boosts your confidence, reduces your anxiety, and gets your energy at the right level, you're probably better off doing the something. 
That's interesting. So talk to us about adrenaline because that's what you're talking about, which is that you've got some energy flowing through you and what's the best way to handle it or manage it. And, and I know you wrote about this in the book, but I only really just got it now that you said that, which is something's going to happen pregame. So this is a matter of how you manage it and how you master it and what you do with it. And I think that all flows back to adrenaline, right? Yeah, it does. So people ask me where I came up with the idea for this book. And I, I come from a variety of places, but one of them was way back in high school. I played high school football and high school basketball. I wasn't very good at either of them, but I became fascinated by the things that the coaches would do and the things the players would do to get ready in those final few moments. And back then, I thought getting psyched up was all about adrenaline. I thought it was like a light switch. You would switch it on and your body would suddenly get this sort of you know, nervous energy and you'd be you know, jumping around and up. Once I started looking into the research and talking to psychologists, and talking to high performers, adrenaline is definitely part of it. But I think it's more about emotions than it is about hormones. I think it's about dealing with that rush of adrenaline so it becomes additive and not subtractive. And it's really about anxiety, confidence, and energy. Those are the three kind of things that I think about are more important than adrenaline. And you talk about these, you talk about in terms of emotion regulation, situation selection, situation modification, and attentional deployment. You want to give us a sentence on each? Yeah, I think um, so. You can do things to sort of manipulate your environment to try to reduce that sense of anxiety. Um, so one of the examples in the book, um, Carly Simon is a performer who was who's had a lot of problems with stage fright. She actually stopped performing for like eight years because she would get so nervous on the stage. And she's tried all sorts of things to prevent that from happening. One of the things she experimented with was changing the lighting at her shows so that instead of the crowd being in the dark and she being the focal point on the stage in a spotlight, she would actually light the house. And people could still see her on the stage, but this made her feel like a little bit less the center of attention and it made her a little bit less stressed, a little bit more comfortable. That's a great example of how to try to manipulate your environment and the situation to help the odds that you're going to give a good performance. You know, I think it's, it's, it is a great example. And when I think about leaders who listen to this podcast and people who are in all sorts of situations, we often walk into a room and just do what, what is expected of us without a sense that actually we could manipulate this environment a little bit to suit us better. And it's a great lesson that says, you know, you have some power in the situation. I mean, we're not all Carly Simon, but you can, you know, you can choose to use PowerPoint or not, depending on whether it works for you. You can use, choose to, you know, ask questions or involve uh, people in a conversation that makes you less the focal point. So there's a number of things that we could do, like Carly, that allows us to take control of the environment. Yeah, and while most of the use cases that naturally come to mind when you think about a book like this are those big public presentations, you know, you're giving a TED talk or you're talking to your board of directors, there's a lot of quieter environments where some of us are performing that we can do the same sorts of things. So I'm an example of that. So I do have to talk about my work in settings like this or in a public setting, but a lot of the most highly important moments for me are when I'm writing by myself in my office. And I try to manipulate that environment. You know, it's not very nerve wracking to be sitting in an office alone writing. But if you look around my desk, you'll see framed photos of things I wrote in years past. And sometimes before I sit down to write, I'll take two minutes and read something I wrote five or 10 years ago that I thought was really good because I'm, I want to have that sort of 
success in my mind before I sit down to do it again. So you can manip manipulate even your office environment to put sort of those reminders of your best self in front of you so that when you look up from your desk, you'll just be reminded, hey, you know, I'm a pretty accomplished performer here. I'm going to sit down and do it again. Well, and, you know, I can't let you say that without throwing in this quirky little detail that you uh, emailed Malcolm Gladwell and used his keyboard for some period of time to see if that impacted your writing. I did. Yeah, there's there's research. I actually wrote about it in Harvard Business Review a bunch of years ago. There's research studies that have been done that look at how people perform if they're using just an ordinary object or tool versus if they're using an object or tool that they think was used by a celebrity or a high performer. One study involved golf clubs. Another study involved study guides for exams. Um, so I tried to, tried to harness this power of sort of a physical lucky object. I emailed Malcolm. I told him what I was doing. I showed him the study. I mailed him off a brand new keyboard in the box. He typed on it for three months. He shipped it back to me. I wrote the book on it. Um, I have it. I don't use it every day. I try to like, you know, not overuse its magic powers. I try to only pull it out for, for assignments that feel like particularly high stakes or that have some, you know, that I'm feeling a little bit anxious about. So I don't overuse it, but it's sort of my lucky keyboard and I pull it out when I need to. So you talk about rituals and superstition, which, you know, maybe this is one, maybe this isn't, but you describe Colbert's pre-show ritual in a lot of detail. And I have to admit, it's kind of strange. You know, it, it, it sounds kind of OCD. And there's a lot of recommendations in the book that feel a little bit like they might be OCD. You're talking about the, the player who was out at exactly 17 minutes before the hour isn't so different than flipping the light switch on five times before you leave the room. So I'm curious for, to, to hear your uh, thoughts on the distinction from OCD or whether OCD is actually just another version of rituals and superstitions that allow us to perform. Yeah, I think you're right that um, OCD, you know, exists on a continuum. And, you know, when does a habit go from being a productive and useful thing to being a neurotic behavior that is detrimental to your happiness? Um, in Colbert's case, Colbert does have a very complex backstage routine. It involves he rings a hotel bell. He's doing hand gestures with various backstage crew members. He's chewing on a Bic pen and putting it back into the box. He's staring at a spot on the wall. Super elaborate and complicated. So the question is, okay, why does he think this works? And you know, the origins of it are hard to say, but when they've done studies on this stuff, the conclusions they reach are that number one, there's something about these rituals that kind of function like the on switch. It sort of reminds your body of the practice you've done. It can sort of help get you into the groove. It's sort of like the starting sequence in any kind of activity. And number two, there, there's a distractive element to it. You know, even if you're Stephen Colbert and you've done a zillion shows, you're probably going to be a little bit nervous before the show. And if your choice is to sit there being nervous and that can be a negative thing, having something to keep yourself busy and occupied, that can be one of the things that rituals serve. You know, it makes me think that the, you know, on the one hand, all of these rituals might be good for any of us. And, and I, I know that some of them are, and we're, we're going to talk through each of them in a minute. Uh, and also, I think maybe a lot of performers and people who are in high stake, high performance uh, environments might be a little OCD. Like in order to be the best swimmer in the world, 
maybe you need to be a little OCD. In order to be Colbert, maybe you need to be a little OCD. And so I wonder the extent to which some of these rituals are particularly powerful for people who have a little bit of that characteristic. Oh, that's an interesting observation. That's one I haven't heard, but it does make sense to me. I've draw, I draw a distinction between what I would consider practice, which is you know the the um, ten thousand hours of substantive preparation for whatever the activity you, it is you're about to do, whether it's making a sales call. You know, if you're going to give a TED talk, you better have written and practiced the heck out of a really good speech. Um, the the kind of things I'm talking about in the book are more like psychological hacks. They don't they don't substitute for that preparation. I think the point you're making is that some of the best performers are really really disciplined about having done that practice over and over and over and over and over the same way. There's kind of an OCD ish like characteristic to that, so it makes sense that warming up the same way mentally might make sense too. It's an interesting observation. You know, the, it reminds me also of this story, and this is less OCD and more sort of ritualistic of the story that uh, that I heard a long time ago. A friend was visiting uh, the Nobel Prize winner Niels Bohr. Uh, he was a famous atom scientist, uh, and he was visiting his home. And as they were talking, this guy kept glancing at the horseshoe that was hanging over the door. And and finally, he he sort of, you know, he asked, Niels, it can't possibly be that you, a brilliant scientist, believe this like sort of foolish horseshoe superstition and and uh niels the scientist responded of course not but i understand it works whether you believe in it or not and it's this great you know it's this sort of sense of like i don't know if i believe in it but i'm not necessarily willing to take it down you know it might still be working yeah, that's interesting. So one of the people I interviewed for the book was Jimmy Johnson, the NASCAR driver, and uh, he he sort of said more or less the same thing. You know, he's he's the star driver, but he's got a hundred people on his crew behind him building the cars and tweaking the engines and doing all that. And he said, you know, we try not to get too hung up in these superstitions. We're not really sure. We don't really believe, but we don't want to chance it. So we're gonna we're gonna partake in some of this stuff anyway. That's <laughs> funny. So let's talk about a couple of the other ones besides ritual and superstition. You talk about pep talks and you say something interesting that, that you know, it's not the typical pregame motivational speech. It's not about excitement as much as it is about focus. And you give this great example of Stanley McChrystal's five-part formula, right? One, here's what I'm asking you to do. Two, here's why it's important. Three, here's why I know you can do it. Four, think about what you've done together before and now let's go do it. And yeah. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, please well, go ahead. So I loved the reporting in that chapter in particular because it was a great example of the very sideload nature of academic research. So I found people who had looked at military pep talks. I found people who had done research on uh, sports pep talks, and I found people who'd done – uh, research on business pep talks, and the three groups had never heard of each other, had never looked at each other's research. They thought that these were totally separate things. But when you actually combine them all and look at them all, they all have the same kind of elements. And somebody like McChrystal has never looked at this research himself, but the pattern he uses fits the thing. Part of a pep talk is giving specific instruction about you, what you want to do. Part of it is about explaining why it's important, making meaning around it. And part of it is empathy, trying to draw a personal connection between the leader and the followers and between the team members themselves. And so I talked to a bunch of people like McChrystal and they all had their own formula, 
and the formulas were all unique, but they all were kind of the same too. They all really had those three elements to them. And it was neat that, that, you know, it's a great example of the real life practice matching the research, even if people have never read the research. Yeah, I love it. And I'm going to start to use it because I think it's, you know, it's a formula that could be applied to so many different conversations that show empathy, that show confidence, that show direction, uh, that I think it was really valuable for me. What kind of music is motivational and how does it drive performance? Well, it's very personal. So the song that motivates you probably will be different than the song that motivates me. What they probably have in common are two things. Um, songs are motivational partly because of what they call the inherent musicality, the actual how it sounds, the rhythm, the beat, the tempo, the words. Here's a good test. If the first time you ever hear a song it instantly puts some pep in your step and makes you feel a little bit more energized. You're reacting to the inherent musicality. The second thing that makes a, a song motivational is your emotional connection, your recollections, the context in which it exists. If you know you hear the song from your senior prom or from uh, from some other pivotal moment in your life, even a movie that you recall very vividly. You're not reacting just to the music. You're reacting to your memory of it, and that can be energizing and motivational at the same way. So if you find songs that have that hit on both those boxes, it's probably going to be a very motivational song for you. You know, you talk about it as a – or I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce his name right – Carajoris, um, a legal performance-enhancing drug. And when I think about when I'm going on a run and, and I hear you know, a song that boosts me up a little bit, it does feel – in that way, like it might be a legal performance enhancing drug. Yeah, they've actually done tests, done research studies, you know, A-B testing where they'll have two groups of runners who have posted similar times and tend to run at the sim at a similar pace. And they'll have one group of them listen to, say, the Rocky soundtrack, and they'll have another group not listen to anything. And in general, listening to some sort of motivational music before you perform an activity like that, it does increase your performance. And, uh, you know, in talking about the book, most runners, if they're if they're doing a lot of serious training, they probably have a playlist. They you know probably spend some amount of time adding songs, subtracting songs, because we've all experienced that being tired and suddenly the right song comes on and it does really lift you up in a way. Dan, you talk about um, self-talk, mental rehearsal, visualization, these sort of in this category of keys to confidence. And um, I, I'm wondering if you've tried that, if it, it – here's my question actually, which is that you also bring in Daniel Kahneman who talks about system one and systems two. And it's this sort of immediate responsive uh, uh, behavior versus the sort of slower – thoughtful, focus, effortful attention. And I'm wondering whether self-talk, mental rehearsal, visualization can work against us, meaning that as you begin to visualize something, as you begin to mentally rehearse it, it actually makes you more stressed. It makes you, rather than get you in the zone, it gets you out of the zone. I, I remember you know, reading Martin Buber, I and Thou, a sort of Jewish philosopher, who talked about these I-it moments versus I-thou moments. And an I-thou moment is when you're completely lost in connection with the object that you're related to. And an I-it moment is when you have an internal dialogue and you're, you're looking at it, but you're you know, um, analytical about it or thoughtful about it, but you're not necessarily in that zone. 
and I and I related it to the Kahneman zones, right? Which is that if you're in an I thou moment, you're really you know just one with whatever you're doing. So that's a long question, but I'm wondering whether self talk, mental rehearsal, visualization takes us out of the zone and out of the I thou connected one moment and brings us into a little bit of distance that might actually increase our stress. That's an interesting question. Um, and I understand. So basically the concern is that um, in many kind of contexts, we'll perform our best if we're really present and we're adapting and we're maybe even a little bit improvisational to the circumstances. And if we overly mentally rehearse, can that kind of create a rigidness um, and a lack of improvisation and adaptability that detracts from our performance. I can certainly think of situations where that might be true, um, but I think you have to look at kind of the upside risk and the downside risk. Um, and for me, I tend to focus on more on the downside risk, and I'd rather do some degree of mental visualization, mental rehearsal, and try to picture myself in the setting doing really well ahead of time. Maybe not sort of obsessing too much about specifically what the circumstances are going to be. Try to remain some flexibility in there. Um, for me, I think it's probably better to over-prepare than under-prepare. And in terms of how much I do this stuff myself, I do find myself like if I'm driving my car on the way to an important meeting, I will spend a little bit of time thinking, you know, pretty directly about how I want that meeting to go. But I also tend to do retrospective stuff more. Like I'm much more likely to think back to like the last time I had a meeting where I crushed it, reflect on how that went. So for me, it's as much about reflecting on past success to prime myself as it is sort of obsessing about the detail of what the next meeting is going to be. I love this next uh, chapter and this focus on getting angry because it's so unusual and it makes so much sense, but I can understand why it might also be disturbing or challenging. You know, this idea that, you know, if you trash talk, if you get angry, it actually might uh, help performance. Can you talk a little bit about that and obviously throw in a disclaimer of the danger? Yeah, well, I think um – for me, reporting that chapter was particularly interesting, and the broader point here is that there are a lot of techniques in the book, and you've touched on a lot of them. Everybody's different, and you know, music may not work for you, but it works for me. Uh, a pep talk, you know, for sort of an ironic, unengaged crowd that might not work so well for you, it might work well for me. Um, trash. I wrote a whole chapter on hostility, anger, and trash talk. I looked into the research in it. It's not a technique that is very effective for me. I tend anger is very rarely a productive emotion for me. I'm not sort of, I'm not focused on rivalry. Um, so for me, it doesn't work very well at all. There are people and there are contexts, you know, if you're in sales, they use leaderboards, you know, there's a lot of measurement, there's a lot of forced curve compensation kinds of things. Um, people in certain kinds, you know, athletics obviously thrives on rivalry. So people in certain contexts, um, are going to encounter anger and hostility and trash talk as a device that may motivate them. Um, but, you know, definitely handle with care. For me, it doesn't really work very well. Right. You know, one of the, the themes that I'm hearing in our conversation, which I'm really loving, is this theme of, you know, I, I think it's affectionately called me search, but this idea that here's a bunch of things that people do that are really successful for people. And, consider and think for yourself about what's going to work. And, you know, music, if you really want to use it as a legal performance enhancing drug, you're going to have to listen to a bunch of music. 
and figure out what it is that excites you and what it is that psychs you up. And I, I had a recent podcast with Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, uh, Stanford, Designing Your Life uh, out of Stanford. And, and a bunch of our conversation was just that, which is that if you're going to do design thinking, it's a lot about a bias towards action and experimenting and reflection and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work. And what you've provided us and psyched up is a number of tools that have worked for a number of people and that in there is the, are, are the ingredients for – you know, chances are the ingredients to help us improve our performance you know, in the moment. And, and the question is which ones are going to work best for us is, is sort of the work that the reader has to do. Am I thinking about this correctly? Yeah, definitely. I consider it kind of a menu of choices, and uh, it definitely definitely makes sense to try a few of them. And I think again, if you go back to the original, uh, the emotions that you're trying to tweak, you know, in general, what should you be doing emotionally before you you enter a performance kind of atmosphere? Well, you should generally be trying to turn down your anxiety, turn up your confidence, and make sure your energy level is right. And for each of us one of those three things is likely to be more problematic than another. So if you're someone that, you know, that anxiety is a problem for, your set of techniques will probably look better or different than somebody who's, who tends not to be very anxious but needs to boost their confidence. So um, trying to understand what the underlying emotional regulation you're trying to do and then the techniques you choose will be someone dependent on that. You know, it, it occurs to me also uh, related to what you just said that – um, you have to think about the kind of event that you're about to perform in and what's going to help you maximize your performance. What I'm thinking about is I ran a race with my daughter. It was the first race that she ever ran running. And she was anxious and she was doing all this stuff to psych herself up. And she sprinted out of the gate. And, you know, within half a mile, she was done. And it's, you know, it's in some ways you have to sort of say, okay, I'm going to get psyched up, but I'm getting psyched up for a sprint. Am I psyched up for a marathon? Am I like, what is it that I'm beginning psyched up about? And what's the kind of energy I need to nurture? Because in that situation, I might really try to get her to nurture an energy of, of, of sustaining and persistence and, you know, measured performance as opposed to excitable performance. Yeah, that's a great example of how often our natural instincts in terms of what we should do in these anxious making situations are the wrong ones. And I have a story with my daughter from the same thing. My daughter is an older teenager. Uh, I took her for her driver's test a few years ago and she was very nervous. You know, it's kind of a high stakes ritual of your teen years is going to take that driver's test. And I sort of fell into this natural pattern where I was saying, you know, there's nothing to be nervous about because if you fail, we can just t come back in two weeks and take it again. Nobody has to know you failed. You know, it's it's not a big deal at all. They call that defensive pessimism, which is focusing on the worst case scenario and then trying to argue for why it's not going to be so bad. And once you actually look at the research, generally speaking, that's a terrible way to approach these things. It's priming the person for failure. It's planting the seed of that they're going to fail in their mind. But it's really the way – You know, I have a downside bias. I try to protect the downside. It's how I used to approach these high-stakes situations with my kids. And one of the results of reporting this book was I don't do that anymore. I tend to focus on the upside, the positive. I build confidence, reduce anxiety. So did she pass? She did pass. All right. Because otherwise now everybody would know. <laughs> she passed and uh, my second child has passed now just more recently. So uh, we're two for two in the driver's tests in the McGinn family. All right. Give me 30 seconds on what you did to prep for this conversation. 
So I'm sitting in an office where I am surrounded by um, great examples of my previous writing work. I listened to a radio interview I did uh, prior to this that was just heavily edited and cut down and burnished. Make It's a three-minute clip. I Google it before I go on shows like this. Uh, they just polished me to make me sound so smart and articulate, much more than I am in real life. So I listen to that before I, I come on a show like this. It reminds me that when I'm having a good day, I can do a good job at situations like this. Um, and I just thought about what a wonderful opportunity is. You know, I try to think about the glass half full. I don't think about what could go wrong. I think about the upside of, of the opportunity you presented me today today to talk about my work. Well, it worked really well, Dan. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. The book is Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. Daniel McGinn is the author and who has been with us on this podcast Dan, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you. This was great. Before we go into the closing music, I want to remind you again that my master level coach training is happening in a few short weeks. We'd love to see you there. To register, visit peterbregman.com forward slash leadership dash coach dash training or check out the URL in iTunes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.